If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with John Hancock. He will be answering our call on the 4th of July, 1776, at the age of 39. At this moment, he is the only signer on the Declaration of Independence committing the highest level of treason to the crown. But why? Hancock was one of the richest men in the colonies. He was a talented businessman with a thriving business. Why would he get involved at all? I've always wondered that. Why take a side against the government that allowed him to amass so much success? Would Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, or Warren Buffett sign a treasonous document and risk everything? No way. So why did Hancock do it? The answer is not freedom, and it's not liberty. And once you know it, in hindsight, it couldn't have been anything else, and it's so obvious. But before we start, Hancock, being the curious go-getter that he was, obviously was fooling around with the smartphone we sent him in 1776. It should be no surprise that he read up on modern politics before we had a chance to talk. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and smugglers everywhere, I give you John Hancock! Hello, is that you, Mr. Hancock? Uh, it is indeed, sir. Sir, I am so excited to speak with you today. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm actually talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand is called a smartphone, and it allows uh, us to speak with one another as if we were in the same room. It also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world and believe me, there are many people in our time that would benefit from your wisdom and courage. And I was hoping that I could ask you some questions. But before I do, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions you may have first? Well, yes. I mean, I, I marvel at this because normally for me to speak with anyone, I had to go to the, one of the local taverns. And we always had at least a pint or, uh, you know, a, a mug of rum or something. And I just don't understand how we could do this so remotely without even looking at each other. This is very strange, sir. There's a lot of things that happen like this in the future that would seem impossible to you in this time. The one thing that hasn't changed is we still always do have that rum or some beer next to us. So that, that has not changed. Well, you know, you do have a few legacies that we did leave behind. You know, I have actually had the privilege of seeing what you call media from the future. And uh, do you know that you could look at pictures on a screen of people talking? I absolutely did know this. In fact, the device that you're holding allows you to do that. Uh, uh, this, is, this is absurd. And, you know, and the people seem so very, very small. I just don't know how you do this, but it is a marvel. And it just makes it very strange because... I have been seeing things about advertising your politics. Do you know that you have politicians that actually lie to people? <laughs> you didn't have politicians that lied in your time? Were all the politicians honest? Is that what you're saying? Well, at least you had to go look at them face to face, and it's very hard to lie to somebody when you can look them in the eye. These people do not even have to look at you. This is a very strange way you have of operating these days. Oh, you, it, more than you know. And, and in fact, the way that we communicate now, it has made it easier to lie than ever. In fact, politicians now will say things that they know are not true, that are proven not to be true, and they'll say them anyhow with the understanding that it's just such a confusing time with so many different types of media that there'll be no accountability for their lives. Well, how in the world, how could somebody elect somebody who would lie to you? Yeah, I mean, that really is the question. And uh, unfortunately, I don't know if there, anybody's figured out an answer to that yet. There, there are a lot of people in our time that wish for simpler times where people did talk to one another more face-to-face -face like this because it's interesting that you say that because if, if you have to talk to somebody face-to-face, -face, it is a lot more difficult to tell a lie because you're standing right there. 
Well, yes, and we also had something in my day that was called accountability, where if somebody did lie to you or they did not do what they say they were going to do, we, well, I mean, we actually had things called tarring and feathering that, you know, basically taught somebody a very hard lesson, but they would never do that again. Have you ever been involved in tar and feathering someone? Well, uh, not me personally. I was a very peace-loving sort of fellow, but I had many, many colleagues in the taverns. In fact, they relished such activities. It was amazing that if you disagreed with somebody politically, you were very wise to make yourself very absent from the town, because we tolerated nothing like that. In fact, we did not tolerate unemployment at all. If you could not work, Unless you were infirm or aged. No, you, uh, we had a workhouse. In fact, I'm sure you have them somewhere in your town, do you not? I think so, but I can't get this visual that you just gave me out of my head. If tarring and feathering was something that we did in this time, if you were to go anywhere where there was a group of politicians, it would look like a flock of birds right now. Because, <laughs> because there would be a lot of tar and a lot of feathers. Today's a pretty important day in history in your time. Can you tell me what the date is in your time? Yes, well, I am talking to you from uh, July 4th of 1776. In fact, uh, I'm actually uh, sitting in the City Tavern in Philadelphia with a few friends not too distant. You've probably heard of a few of them. Sam and John Adams are not too, uh, not too distant. Of course, they've always been very close to me over many, many years. We actually selected and voted on something called the Declaration of Independence two days ago. It was on the 2nd of July. But today, I finally got the printed version of it, so I I signed it. Basically, it is now an official document. The sad part is, as it stands right now, I am the only delegate in Congress who has committed treason if you look at the eyes of the crown in London. You're the only one that signed that document right now. As of today, yes. We are sending a, the copy to a calligrapher who uh, basically has fine penmanship. I would say probably penmanship almost as good as my own, who will uh, certainly uh, create a better document. But I anticipate we will probably sign that at the earliest, maybe early next month. The fact that you're the only one that has signed that document and your signature in our time is very famous. Everybody knows your name for lots of reasons, but definitely because of your signature. Because on the final document, your signature is in the middle, and it is huge. Is that the reason that it was so big, because you were the only one signing it, or why did you sign it so big? Well, there are those who say that I am rather bombastic, but I'm very proud of my uh, signature. I'm sure that you've heard that when we were young children, we uh, certainly went to the Boston Latin School. But after school was over at 5 o'clock, I had to go to writing class every day for an hour. I had a very uh, fine teacher who basically made me very proud of my penmanship. I didn't say it personally, but uh, one of the uh, men in Congress, I think it was Stephen Hopkins from Rhode Island, who made the comment that uh, my signature is large enough so that King George would not have to read it without his spectacles. (laughs) But you didn't do that for that reason, then, is what you're saying. No, I basically, I I was noted to sign my name larger than most people because I was very proud of the one thing I could do quite well. That makes sense. So it is the 4th of July, 1776, and you've just signed this copy of this document. What are things like right now in the colonies? Oh, uh, they are in total turmoil. As it stands right now, uh, just to give you, make it personal, we have actually had overtures from General Gage and uh, General Howe now, basically making overtures that anybody who uh, would sign a uh, note of allegiance to the crown would basically uh, be able to be reconstituted as a faithful subject, with the exception of two people, and that is Sam Adams and myself, who would be shipped to London for what they call a trial, and then we would be hanged. But as far as uh, things go here, uh, things are very, very 
up in the air. I mean, we're rather upbeat and rather confident that we have a militia that could uh, certainly meet anything that is going on, but I am very fearful for General Washington because they've had a terrible, terrible time of it as it regards uh, what's going to be happening in New York. I understand the British fleet is on the way. We're going to have our hands full soon. We forced the evacuation of the British Army out of Boston. General Howe took uh, his army and all of the loyalists, and they basically got the hell out of there. In fact, I'm looking forward to getting back to Boston myself. I'd like to see what they've done to my home on Beacon Hill. Have you heard anything? Well, it takes a long time, and normally at least two weeks, for us to get any news about what is going on. But uh, we have been so busy here with trying to figure out what we're going to do about it with the threats against New York. By the way, that is the only reason we finally got this declaration signed. It was very, very difficult for us to find any common ground. I mean, uh, John Dickinson... And Judge Wilson out of Pennsylvania and certainly all of the men in the South wanted nothing to do with independence as we are thinking now. But I think with this threat of this fleet and the army coming to New York and also threats against Charleston down in the Carolinas, I think we're going to finally uh, get around to making us all sing with one song. We still have recalcitrant group of people in New York who their legislature can't get anything together. So they basically abstained in their voting as of right now, but I think they'll come around. I don't understand how you got involved in all this, because here you inherit this fortune. I think it was from your, from your uncle? Yes, yes, yeah. Uncle Thomas. You inherit this fortune, and you've got this thriving business. I, I've often thought that you're the person that risked the most in this revolution, I mean, everybody is risking their lives, and, th- and that certainly is consequential. But not everybody would risk the fortune that you have. Why did you not just step back and go, you know what, I'm already filthy rich over here. Maybe I just shouldn't get involved in this. I tried to do this many times. I'm glad you brought that up. This whole thing actually started for me back in, oh, 10 years ago, actually. It was 1766. You see... The Crown decided that they needed to get money, actually, to pay for what they refer to here as the French and Indian War. Instead of raising taxes on all of the uh, lords and ladies of London, they decided to make the colonies pay for it. The first thing they did is they put together something called a Stamp Act. I'm sure you heard about that. Mm-hmm. Where they dictated that any paper document, including playing cards, for goodness sake, they basically wanted us to pay a tax for a government stamp on them. Well, they did this a year ago. Well, actually, they did this back in uh, 65, where they passed this law. I spent half my time in courts with bills of sale and everything, and they were demanding uh, me pay a tax every time I had a bill of sale for something or any uh, document coming in. And I just said, uh, this is nonsense. So what we did was we just refused to use the courts. And so uh, there were no sales. There was no, there was nothing going on legally in the colonies, especially in Boston. So they basically rescinded that law. And at that time, I remember telling Sam Adams, leave me alone because he was getting me involved because Sam failed at every darn thing he ever tried. Do you know that he actually (laughs) inherited a brewery, and he blew it? (laughs) How do you fail at a brewery? (laughs) Well, uh, well, he had a lot of competition. I don't know if you're aware of it, but Boston was a, well, it still is. It's a very small town. There was only like 16,000 people there, but we had more than 60 breweries and distilleries. In there, we had about 150 taverns, and that's in a little area that's about maybe a little more than one square mile. In that kind of competition, Sam really had to do a good job, but he did not have a mind for business at all, and he basically lost the whole darn thing. In fact, we actually let him become a tax collector, and if somebody couldn't pay their taxes, he said, well, then don't worry about it. (laughs) Uh, So we we fired him for that. So. 
So the only thing Sam was good for is pissing off the government. Forgive my for putting it that way, but that's exactly what he did. And he was always writing these editorials in the Boston Gazette, vilifying anybody that held office. His problem was, if he wanted to get attention in the taverns, he usually had to buy somebody a drink. Well, Sam was flat broke. He had one suit. He wore it all the time. It was red. It was threadbare and everything. So uh, he became my best friend saying that, uh, you know, as long as I bought a few drinks for a lot of people in the taverns, we would uh, certainly uh, do quite well together. And so I I put the bill and he spread the propaganda. And that's how we basically shut down the courts and had them rescind the uh, Stamp Act. Well, now that makes sense. As you're sitting here talking about this, I'm trying to figure out how somebody like you, who understands business and is industrious and succeeds at what you take on, and Sam is just the opposite. So I'm trying to figure out why are you even spending time with this guy if he fails at everything, and now I see it in in this situation where you're trying to make change. Sam's the loud voice you can get behind, and he, he maybe will push some buttons that you wouldn't want to push, or maybe even make some people angry that you wouldn't want to make angry. Am I, am I on the right track here? No, you are quite right. I mean, I had factors in London who helped coordinate my business. I inherited four ships from Uncle Thomas. I grew it up to a fleet of 20 sailing ships. You know, I had brigs, brigantines, sloop, schooners. And uh, basically, uh, by the way, I hate to admit this, but uh, since I'm talking to someone I feel I could trust, basically I inherited one great aspect of business from my uncle, and that was smuggling. What I would do is I would pay a partial tax in declaring part of the cargo. And therefore, I, you know, my profits increased considerably. And I did not want those things abused. My factors in London knew about this. My fellow merchants in Boston and all up and down the colonies, in fact, knew that this is the way we conducted business. I did not want to upset the crown, so to speak. I just wanted them to adjust their course. Sam, on the other hand, had nothing to lose. So he could basically be a rabble-rouser. In fact, you may have heard about this gentleman. His name was Ebenezer McIntosh. Now, Ebenezer organized what was called the South Side Gang that usually had a traditional fight with the gangs of the North Side of Boston. And Sam actually united these men. And these were the guys who lived in the taverns. They were the cobblers, the tailors, the rope makers, sail makers, and so forth. And basically, they were the rabble-rousers who would actually do the tarring and feathering (laughs) if Sam decided it was the appropriate thing to do to, say, let us say, a tax collector. And uh, so that's the way it worked. Boy, can you imagine if Sam Adams was as wealthy as you are, the terror that he would bring on anybody that got in his way? Oh, uh... Sam, I don't think Sam was beyond hanging people if he could get away with it. Uh, He liked to have himself basically at arm's length from all of those things, but he was always in the shadows, and uh, that worked. The thing is, we thought, in fact, I actually told Sam when they rescinded the Stamp Act, they said, now I can get back to business as usual. Would you believe those fools in London, in Parliament, actually created something called the Intolerable Acts, where they actually, they did not, they removed the stamp tax, but then they taxed everything else. I mean, when it came to something like paint or furnishings or anything made, cloth that was imported, whatever they wanted to import, and then they actually gave a company called the East India Company an exclusive on tea, and they taxed the hell out of tea. This is what I don't understand. It just sounds absurd for them to walk in and say, okay, here's the deal. Now you've got to pay tax on playing cards. Now you've got to pay tax on this. It's no wonder that the colonists had a strong reaction. What was their justification for these taxes? What were they offering? Basically, the crown was broke. But here's the other part of it when I mentioned tea. You see, they had a bona fide interest in the East India Company financially themselves. And I'm talking about King George III. 
And because he had a personal financial interest, that is why they created a tax. Now, here's a funny thing. They actually lowered the tax, cutting it in half. But by giving one company an exclusive on, it was the only company that was allowed to import and sell tea as a merchant. Can you imagine any government giving preferential treatment to any company whatsoever or any industry? Wait a minute. I saw a local paper from your time that says you have somewhat the same problem going on right now. <laughs> we, uh, we, we do. I mean, they tax everything now. And in fact, there is nothing that you do not pay a tax on now. Uh, is it true that you must have a license to have a dog? <laughs> this is true. However, when you were talking about smuggling and how you would find a way to get things through, there's a lot of people that get a dog and they just ignore that. They can get in some trouble for it, but it's not big trouble. But yeah, now, those you, you, are the people I respect. <laughs> dog smugglers? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, anybody <laughs> who would sort of bend the law. You know, let me share one important aspect with you <laughs> that some of, you know, you may have never really realized this. But when we paid a tax, uh, everything was fine. You know, well, the thing is, I felt the taxes were exorbitant and basically illegal. Because up till in my uncle's time, the only people that did any taxation were the local people. And we understood that we were getting benefits from our own taxes. All of this money was all of a sudden going to some people who God knows what they were doing with it in London. I could not, I found that abhorrent. So what I would do is a little bit of smuggling. Well, unfortunately, I don't know if you ever heard of this, but Back in, oh, it was like the later uh, 1760s, around, I think it was 67, the British government sent a, a frigate, it was a 50-gun frigate called the Romney. They actually confiscated one of my ships, actually two of them. One was the Lydia, the other was the Liberty. And I had declared 25 pipes of wine when I actually had more than 200. And so what they did was the tax collectors actually put what's called the broad arrow on the mast of my ship, and they confiscated it, and they just took it out in the harbor and moored it next to the Romney. Here's what I learned about the way the government worked. They enjoyed doing this. We're talking money now, and I understood money. When they confiscated my ship, they were allowed to not only sell all the cargo off of it, but then they actually could sell the ship. Oh, my gosh. Is that right? Well, well here's the bad part. One third of the money went right to King George himself. Another third went to the governor of the colony, who at the time was Thomas Hutchinson who I, uh, you know, I actually knew quite well. He was actually a merchant. But then another third, the last third, went actually to the tax collector who painted the broad arrow on my ship. So what is the incentive for everyone to be honest in this? Because if they mark any of these ships, everybody's making a bunch of money from you, and they assume that you've got plenty, so what do they care? I mean, you'd be a huge target then. I was the biggest target in the colonies. You know, I was obviously the arguably the wealthiest man in the colony. I had uh, inherited my money when I was 27 years old. I'd say at least a thousand people in the town of Boston owed me money. You know, I was lending money out all the time just to help people out. So, uh, you know, I was I was quite popular. Everybody knew I uh, basically did a little bit of smuggling, but everybody benefited from it. Everybody but the king. Let me ask you about this smuggling for a minute. There's a couple things that you've said that I want to address. You would come in with a ship, and you would have a ship that was full of wine. And then the smuggling meant that you would offload a certain amount of the cargo before you came into dock. And then you'd only pay taxes on a tenth or a quarter or something of, of what the ship would hold. Is that, is that right? You know, you sound like a smuggler yourself. <laughs> I'm learning from the best right now. <laughs> yes, that was quite right. I mean, you know, it, was, it just made nothing but good sense. And basically, uh, I actually would bring in cargo in cahoots with uh, other merchants. Everybody was involved with this. Yeah, I, I talked with Benedict Arnold about this. 
And I... Hi. You know who Benedict Arnold is? Oh, what a bastard he is, isn't it? I'm yeah, yeah. I talked to him about smuggling, and I asked him if he was a smuggler because he did the same thing. And he kind of said under his breath, like, oh, you know, we all do that, and it, but didn't really want to talk about it. But it sounds like this isn't something that was even frowned upon because, as you're saying, everybody was involved in it. Yeah, the only people that frowned on it were the politicians who were uh, tied to King George and Parliament. Let me be on the other side of this argument for a minute. I want to challenge something you've just said. In our time, we pay taxes, and they're heavy, and they pay for roads, and, and they pay for public defense, and they pay for programs so that you know, if somebody doesn't have money, they can get some help. I mean, there is some good that is done with taxes. What did the crown offer the colonists if they paid taxes? Was there any benefit to paying taxes? The only thing we got that I thought was worth a darn was we uh, usually held the uh, British Army in high regard. We had an Indian problem, and they put some forts up, and they were actually the road builders that we had. The British Army actually had a reason to build roads, not us. They actually created some roads into the, uh, you know, the connecting hamlets and so forth. That was about it. We were most concerned with basically providing arms and munitions and gunpowder and everything for the army to protect us from the uh, hostiles that were out there. But no, uh, as far as getting anything done by what you would refer to as a government service, uh, oh, my goodness not. I mentioned earlier, we had the workhouse. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but a workhouse, even young children, had to earn their way. And the workhouse worked six days a week from, you know, sun up till sundown. And they created something called oakum. You may not be familiar with that term, but basically what they did was chop hemp and they mixed it with tar, which created a pitch. And that oakum was sold to the shipbuilders to basically caulk all of the seams on our sailing ships. And all they did was chop hemp heat it up in a hot pitch, and create what we called oakum. This is the way everybody earned their way in our community. In fact, if someone showed up inside the county, in Suffolk County, if they did not have a job, the sheriff escorted them back to the county limits and told them they were invited to go back from whence they came. Wow. And there were young children that were involved in making this oakum? Oh, yes. Everybody had to work. In fact, many times we had orphaned children whose families, for whatever reason, they could have died of the pox or something like that. And if that did happen, well, it was unfortunate. And I know that I actually went to the workhouse and actually took a young lady and uh, brought her into my home to be a servant. I educated, fed her, clothed her, and just took care of her in that fashion, but at least I took her out of the workhouse. I mean, with all this money that you had, you could have just been greedy and just continued to make money. It seemed like that you have a strong moral compass because it cost you a lot to get involved in this revolution. And, and the more I read about you, you were constantly helping and, as you said, loaning people. Is this a core belief of yours in some way? Where did this come from? Well, I think you you must understand, number one, we lived in a very Puritan region. You just did the right thing. I remember we had a, a rather large fire in Boston back in the, uh, oh, good grief now, this was, what, maybe eight years ago. And a bakery caught fire and actually burned down more than 10 homes and other buildings in the area. And I just provided all of the lumber to rebuild all of it. I refer to it as nothing but good business. Some people might call it being charitable, but you help your fellow man. In fact, many times uh, we would throw parties, my fellow merchants and I. The ladies would buy new dresses and basically keep the tailors in business. And I remember I had a good friend named Revere uh, who actually uh, you know, made silver and gold buttons for our clothing. Uh, kept him uh, in business also. You're involved with everybody, aren't you? I had to be. Like I say, when I had more than a 1,000 people that owed me money, I was involved with them very, very much so. In fact, you might be interested in knowing this. You know, I mentioned taverns. Well, we had about 150 of them. And, of course, being in Puritan Boston, you must understand that it was the law. Everybody went to church. 
on Sunday. If you did not go to church, you could be fined, at least in the early days under my uncle. In fact, father was a minister. I'm sure you knew that. And so was my grandfather. In fact, he was known as the Bishop of Lexington. And that's where I was living after my father had died until my uncle came and took me out of that and made me a wealthy man, ultimately. But getting back to the taverns, more than half of them were also what you would call houses of ill repute. In fact, in Curitan, Boston, they were referred to as nunneries. And, uh, you know, it just kept things on the, you might say, uh, a, a wink and a nod. I actually dated a lady who, um, her name was Griffith. What we did together, I'll, I'll basically firmly deny. But uh, they just accepted uh, the way certain people had to make a living. And so the, the wenches in the taverns were uh, rather uh, free with their affections, let me put it that way. Of course, it still cost you a shagging for a shilling, and that's all part of it, too. <laughs> you know, that would be a great title for a book. Let me ask you about the first ship that you had said that the British took from you was the Lydia, and then the second one was the Liberty. If there was one ship that they probably shouldn't have made the centerpiece of this issue, it would have been one named the Liberty. I mean, that was a terrible choice, just because by its name it stood for something. Precisely. In fact, thank God my friends, my fellow colonists, actually took the uh, small enforcement boat, if I want to call it that, that belonged to the, the customs agents, and they actually burned it. The reason this came all to a head on October 1st of 1768 is when the, the parliament actually sent the British army to basically take over the town. And I remember that day very, very well. It was October 1st when more than a 1,000 redcoats marched down King Street up through the State House and actually put a camp up on Boston Common. I had a home on Beacon Hill which overlooked the Common. I used to be looking at the nice peaceful thing where we had sheep and cattle grazing, and all of a sudden there were a bunch of white tents on this beautiful Common that we had. It just changed everything. Jeez, that's, that's, that's wild. You'd mentioned George Washington. What's your relationship with him? I got to know him quite well when I first went to the Second Continental Congress. In fact, I was presiding as president when he was nominated by John Adams to be general of the army. And I found the man quite profound in that the first thing he said was he felt he was unequal to the task, but he would accept it. And he also insisted that he be not paid except for his expenses during the entire affair. Of course, he fully expected in taking the job. That was in, what was it, June of 75. That was last year that uh, he thought this would all be over by Christmas. And unfortunately, this thing has just blossomed into something a lot worse than we expected. I know George quite well because every time he sends a letter to Congress, it comes to addressed to me as president of the Congress. Oh. And then we just uh, pass the word on from there. George is probably one of the finest, most honest people I have ever known in my life. The only time I find him lying, if I want to use that word, is he is an excellent propagandist. He was not shy of, let's put it this way, exaggerating what, how large our army was or how well armed we were or, you know, everything else. But he inherited a real can of worms up there in Boston, I, I must admit. He arrived there shortly after you know, certainly after Lexington and Concord, but he arrived there just after Bunker Hill, and he just inherited a very untenable mess up there where actually the army was not even, I hate to admit it, the, the guys were, they just came and go as they pleased because they were all part of a militia, and they actually elected their officers, so that was, you know, their friends, actually relatives, wow. and in so doing... These, uh, when he arrived, these men had not even dug a latrine. So, you know, the place just reeked, and he had to install some kind of discipline. And he did this in a very harsh fashion in many ways. You obviously know Washington well. 
So you say he was he, he understood propaganda and he said he was not up to the task, which I'm wondering if that was propaganda to show that how humble he was because people would certainly appreciate that. Is he as humble as he seems? Yes, yes, I, I would say this. I mean, he he basically insisted on having all the accoutrements of the dignity he could. He actually uh, had a, a slave attend him. Well, good grief, ever since he got up there, a guy named Billy Lee, who was an excellent horseman. That man was by his side, to my knowledge, uh, every every day. So he's very, very loyal to his people. Uh, the thing is, he does get lonely. You know that he actually had Martha join him over in Boston <laughs> for Christmas. It was kind of interesting that the man does take care of himself in that regard. When it comes to loyalties and everything, I don't think I could find a, a better man. I think he's learned one thing, that no matter what you do when you're in a position of authority, you're always going to be perceived as half wrong. I know I find this just sitting as president of the Congress. Every time somebody opens their mouth, somebody's opening their mouth to, to the contrary. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're never going to get a situation where everybody agrees on anything. There's just no, there's no way. And, and there's probably something good about that, as uncomfortable it is in the moment. Well, yes. I, I have learned just being president of the Congress that I have had many times to come out contrary to what Sam and John Adams want simply because uh, I, I look at the equanimity of the whole thing where the men from the South certainly have their own perspective on how things should be. Those people are fearful of the fact that if we were to create any real government, they are fearful that there will be a new King Hancock, for example, who will now all of a sudden dictate how they will live. So uh, there's a lot of paranoia about the idea of being controlled by somebody who is remote, who may not really give a damn about what they are doing locally. That's why it was so difficult for everybody to get together, because all the colonists have known is a king, and they just don't want another king. Precisely. We abhor the idea of royalty. I was there to witness King George being crowned. I was very fortunate that Uncle Tom sent me to London for a few years to get to know how business was run and how things should be operated. But uh, I was there, I was elated, and I thought, my goodness, I should be able to dress like all these lords and ladies. But then coming back and living with the people that I have to live with and know that I need the local tailor, I need the local cobbler, I need the rope makers, I need the sail makers. On a daily basis, on Hancock Wharf, I have my own warehouse, and I meet these people daily, and I sit in the taverns with them in the evening. Some people would refer to them as the great unwashed, but <laughs> unless they are acknowledged as having a mind, and I am very mindful of the idea that we should educate everybody and that they should at least be able to read and write. I'm trying to understand you as a person, and you just said something that the pieces are coming together for me. When you were voted as the president of the Second Continental Congress, that was unanimous, is that right? Yes, it was, yes. Uh, okay. I was very, very fortunate, of course. You see, uh, it basically, it was a temporary thing. You see, Peyton Randolph from Virginia was basically the president, but he had some other commitments in Williamsburg to go and take care of things in the legislature there because he was part of the Tidewater aristocracy in Virginia, and they were all interrelated. Uh, you know, the, you've heard of Richard Henry Lee. They were related to the Lees. And there's another guy, you probably heard of him, Tom Jefferson, and he was a cousin to Peyton Randolph. So when Peyton decided he had to leave, they had an election. And they just thought it would be very good to put me in there because they decided they needed somebody from New England to basically push certain things through. So I had the support of the South, especially the uh, gentleman in Virginia, which was our largest colony at the time. So that did carry the day. So that's basically how I got the job. Sadly, it was, I think it was last October, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the 22nd of 75, 
Peyton Randolph had come back to Congress, and there was a lot of controversy that he was going to take my seat away and put me back into the delegate group with the Massachusetts. But as luck would have it, I understand the man died of apoplexy at a dinner, and he was actually in company with uh, Tom Jefferson when it happened. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, the reason that I asked that question about you being voted, voted unanimously, I always wondered why you, and it makes sense, because here you were just a minute ago, you're talking about, you know, you're working with the people that make the sales, and you're working with the cobblers, and you have this ability to work with everyone. Who else would be a better person to sit in the seat of the, the president of the Continental Congress is a person who has the ability to work with anyone. I mean, if you were to put somebody like John Adams up there, it'd be catastrophic. Uh, well, John Adams, one great attribute. He could piss anybody off. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> John, John was an attorney. I think his, his real problem, of course, he was very proud of it, but I'm sure you heard of the Boston Massacre. And, Most definitely. Uh, we definitely know about yeah. that in this time. Yeah, that was a, a tragedy. And by the way, that was all prefaced because what was happening in the weeks prior to that is we had what was called the non-importation agreement. And Sam had instituted that actually with the other colonies where we would not buy anything that came from England. And anybody that tried to sell anything or import anything from England was certainly vilified and subject to being tarred and feathered. Well, there was a gentleman named Richardson who uh, basically was one of those bad guys. He was a Tory merchant, and he was doing things wrongly. Uh, to make a long story short, a group of men uh, using some young boys who actually do the dirty work were throwing rocks at him and at his house, breaking all of his windows and kicking at his doors and everything. The man was fearful for his wife and daughter. And he actually, uh, with a, um, a shotgun, with, I think it was swan shot, actually uh, poked his uh, weapon out of the uh, second-story window, and he told everybody to disperse and stop it, and they told him to go someplace that was hotter than here. <laughs> so he opened fire, and he killed a young boy named Chris Cedar, who was 11 years old. And to make a long story short, he got arrested for it, and there was a big hullabaloo about tarring, feathering him, or even hanging him. But Sam Adams felt he had a real good thing going where he had now a martyr for this whole thing. So he actually arranged for Chris Cedar to have arguably the largest funeral procession to that date in all of Boston. And they insisted all of the taverns and stores be closed up so that everybody could go to the funeral at the old burial ground. Well, this created a very big gaggle of tension, and shortly thereafter, about two weeks later, one of the Redcoats, a guy named Walker, actually he was a corporal, who actually went looking for some extra work at Gray's Rope Walk, and he just said, you know, hey, I'd like to help out, make some extra money, and they told him that he could do something really nice, like, and I'm going to say this politely, you could clean the latrine. And I don't want to tell you what they told them they could do, but you get the picture. I think I got and it. So a, a fight broke out between a, the, uh, the barracks of the Redcoats against all the men working on the, red, uh, the rope walk. Well, cooler heads prevailed, and there was still this brewing. Well, that happened on a Friday. By the following Monday, and this was, I think, was March 5th of 70, Ooh, way back when, no good grief, that was six years ago. And what happened is there were two feet on the ground, and there was a young soldier named Hugh White who was standing guard in front of the customs house, which was not a good place to be. And some young men came by, and they were throwing snowballs. Pretty soon, one thing led to another, and Hugh White actually took the butt of his brown best musket and just wrapped the young man in the mouth with it. Well, he started screaming and yelling, and pretty soon the taverns emptied into the street, and all of a sudden everybody was picking up everything they could to throw at this poor five-foot-tall soldier. And he's standing alone, so he called out the main guard to help him out, which was about 50 yards away over by the uh, statehouse. 
And so seven soldiers led by a Captain Preston showed up to defend him. And the crowd grew to, I think, close to a thousand people. And there's only eight soldiers standing in front of the customs house. And all this freezing cold. One thing led to another, and pretty soon uh, somebody knocked one of the soldiers down, and one of the muskets discharged. And a dead silence pervaded all over King Street. And everybody, is anybody hit? Well, they discovered nobody was. Well, then things got really out of hand. We'll make a long story short. All the Redcoats opened fire, and ultimately there were five dead men that they put in the old burial ground. You know, that's basically what spawned all of this hate and discontent, and it never went away. The one thing that Sam did get done, though, is he forced the issue where the Redcoats actually were put on Castle William in a fort there just to get the army out of the town. So he was kind of happy with that, but they were still in the vicinity. And then I'm thinking everything will finally get back to peace and quiet. And then you know the rest of the story. The next thing that happened was we had something called Lexington and Concord. Yeah. And that just blew everything out of the water. And we're now in the situation that we are. We've had Bunker Hill and the evacuation of the British Army. God only knows how this is going to end. But from talking to you, you seem to know how it all ended. Yeah, yeah. I think things are going to work out. You've got a lot of fighting and some pretty hard things to deal with between now and then. But they do work out, and what you're fighting for is, is certainly worth it. I want to ask you about John Adams representing the Redcoats after the Boston Massacre. Yeah, I'm glad. I got off track there. You're, you're exactly right. He offended the whole town because the Redcoats, you know, they were going to have a trial. And here's the irony of this, if you think about it. The Crown had to have a trial. The Supreme Court justice happens to be the governor of the colony. That's, you know, I just love it. Tom Hutchinson had a lot of offices. He actually picked a panel of judges. There were seven of them. And they had the job of trying the Redcoats. And they had every intention of finding them innocent, although they were the prosecutors. <laughs> and that, that is a good match right there. And the other side of it was that they couldn't find an attorney until they found Sam's cousin, John Adams, to defend them. And Sam said, well, listen, I got my cousin. He's going to do a lousy job intentionally so that we can hang these guys. Theoretically, the defense wants them hanged, but the prosecution who's prosecuting wants them saved. Basically, they had a hard time actually uh, getting a jury where they actually went out into the taverns and just told some people, you're now on the jury. So that's how that all happened. Sam did such a wonderful job. The one thing I can say about him as a barrister, that man could speak for four hours. Never you mean John or do you mean Sam? Twice. I'm, oh, no, John. John. Okay, so John, you're saying, did a good job. Yes, a tremendous job, much to his cousin's chagrin. In fact, uh, for a while, they didn't even talk to each other because when John got them all off, they did find two men. They convicted two of the soldiers for killing somebody, but they pled clergy. And so all they had to do was instead of uh, being hanged or anything beyond that, they just were branded on their hand, on their right hand, I might add, with an M as being a murderer. And they were all let go, and the Crown just got them out of town very, very quickly. That was a thing? They branded them on the hand? Did they put an M on their hand? Well, yes. Well, think about this. In your courts, you have somebody swear to tell the truth, and they have to raise their right hand. Well, the reason you raise your right hand is to prove that you have not been convicted of a crime yourself, or you might be a liar. Wow, that's interesting. Jeez, I didn't know that. Well, see, you learn something all the time from John Hancock. There's no question. John Hancock has a lot to teach. I'm learning that for sure. Hey, let's talk about John Adams for a minute. Do you respect him? For him to stand up for them, 
when they clearly had shot these colonists, and here you guys are you know, trying to get some fair treatment from the British government that you're just not getting. Was it the right thing for him to do, to stand up for them, knowing that he might win? In retrospect, I think it was. Keep in mind, I'm a businessman. At that time, almost all my trade went through England. In fact, part of the intolerable acts were that all trade must go directly through England itself. And so, no, that was, I knew where my bread was buttered, so to speak. I certainly wanted to maintain those contacts. I was a businessman, and I just prayed that that would not get harmed too badly. Of course, now the way things stand, here I am in 1776. I actually had to sell all my ships. Basically, I'm just watching how, you know, things go and pray that ultimately the uh, British crown will come to its senses and say, this is nonsense and let's just get back to normal and let's stop this taxation from England uh, where I do not need a one town dictating what's going to happen in all of these colonies here. That's absurd. You know, I think that we need something where the primary governance is coming right out of our colony and let things be handled that way. To have one town dictate what's going to happen everywhere, I think, is absurd because we're not all cut from the same cloth. Right. They, you know, every colony has its own problems. Yeah. Sam Adams was the man behind the scenes stirring a lot of this up. And I think that to his last day, he probably will find some cause that he's got to get behind and always be stirring the pot. It sounds like that is just his nature. But now, as we get further into this conversation, I'm understanding more and more how you continued to be involved in this. First of all, you were involved with everybody already, but as things got worse, it seems to me that you're looking for, you're just trying to get to that point where you can satisfy the problem and then get back to doing business. Your goal was not the same as Sam Adams, where like, that's it, we're going to be free and there's going to be a revolution. You're just trying to get to a point where you're like, look, let's, this Stamp Act is ridiculous. So the Township Act is ridiculous. Let's get this solved and let's get back to business. But if any of those things had been resolved and been left alone, you would have been done with the whole affair, wouldn't you? Oh, uh, without a doubt. And there it is. That's the answer to why Hancock got involved. He didn't want to. He says it over and over. As the British crown continued putting restrictions on the colonies via taxes or taking away rights... It all affected Hancock's business because Hancock's business involved everyone. When the Stamp Act hurt his business, he took steps to have it repealed. And then once it was, he moved on because his primary goal was to get back to business, not to fight for independence or change the world. In the next episode, you're going to hear how these events piled up on Hancock until there was no way out, at which point... His business became the American Revolution. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History Podcast.